Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with Aditi Atsud, Pomona College class of 1997, and currently president at Lord Miller. As a producer, he's best known for box office hit movies like The Martian, Deadpool 1 and 2, and Murder on the Orient Express. So welcome, Aditya. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's nice to have you with us here in cyberspace. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know this is probably a pretty challenging time in Hollywood the same way it is everywhere else. Um, how are you adjusting personally and professionally? Well, you know, it, it's interesting. The, the thing that they, they always said about Hollywood is it's never the same day twice. Um, and this year has certainly <laughs> proven that, even though sometimes the days <laughs> seem like they run together. Um, you know, I think what was, was really fascinating was just how quickly, um, you know, long-held traditions changed overnight and how, how you know, then new traditions, some of which I think are going to last beyond the pandemic, reformed. Um, you know, obviously the, the biggest challenge, the two biggest challenges for us have been uh, making movies, physically producing movies with crews of, you know, 100, 200 people, uh, often in, in distant locations, um, which, you know, if anyone has been on a film set, it's a very vibrant place where you, people are congregating and exchanging information and, and you need that kind of interactivity uh, to make movies. Filmmaking is one of the most collaborative uh, art forms I think that there is. So that, you know, it, it, there's been a real learning curve for the whole industry over the last seven months now. Um, Eight months, boy. Eight months, um, yeah, how time flies. It really does. <laughs> uh, but what's it's really been interesting is now things are starting to go back into production. In fact, we have a television show that started shooting last week and, you know, we have a, we have a COVID testing protocol and, and, you know, it's become a lot more rigid sort of who can interact with whom. And, you so know, you we're, we're, we have a bubble. Yeah. There are multiple bubbles. They can interact with each other. Um, there's daily testing. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's going to have an impact. Obviously, it makes it harder to, to do things quickly. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it also puts a little bit of pressure on everyone to maybe plan. I mean, people are generally very meticulous about, um, about filmmaking is just, you know, it's an incredibly expensive process. Um, so you want to really make it count. But this really, you know, I think the amount of attention and the logistics, because your your ability to improvise on the fly is probably the thing that's the most curtailed by COVID. Um, and then, of course, the other big piece of it um, it has been how people consume, you know, movies more so than television. I mean, television obviously people watch at home, and you know, we've seen sort of the, the transformation of going from broadcast to cable, and now you know to streaming services over the last. Um, last 10 years. Um, but for film, you know, which traditionally is a theatrical experience, that was also changing before COVID. Um, 
you know, it's obviously been a real, a real sea change, you know, it, it, hopefully a temporary one, but I think they're going to be real permanent um, implications for, uh, you know, how, how people go and see movies or, you know, are people going to expect to see, you know, new release films uh, at their home because they've, they've gotten the opportunity to do that over these last few months. Um, and obviously a company like Netflix, which has, that's been their entire model. They, 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 in some ways were really ahead of this curve, but now the traditional studios are, you know, trying to figure that out, but it's not so simple because the, the financial uh, implications for, for this are profound, they're profound. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the kind of scale of, of movies that, um, you know, the studios are really focused on making don't necessarily lend themselves to be just streaming movies. And so you've seen the big movies that were supposed to come out this summer. You know, there were a couple of them that may have come out, um, you know, on one of the streaming platforms. Um, but for the most part, studios have actually just decided to sit on them and take the insurance, I'm sorry, the, uh, and they decided to sit on them and, and take the, you know, pay the interest on their, uh, on their investment and wait until there's a moment where they can actually release these movies in, um, you know, in thousands of screens when it's safe to do so. So, you know, that, that it's, it's, it's precipitating a lot of conversations now about what movies, um, should get made and and both in terms of there are some movies that are easier to make in this COVID environment. Um, and then it does really have implications for, you know, what, what movies are going to be in movie theaters and what movies might not be in movie theaters. And, you know, and in some ways there's opportunity there too, because there are types of movies that I think people have bemoaned haven't been getting made uh, by major studios in the way that they used to 15, 20 years ago. When you know, over the last decade, I would say, uh, studios have really transitioned to, to these, you know, giant blockbuster tentpole movies. And sometimes what people like to call the movies in the middle have been, um, you know, they, it's just it, financially, they don't make as much sense. But, you know, they may make sense on streaming and some of them may make sense theatrically. You know, I, I think The Martian is a movie that some could argue, you know, when we made it wasn't, you know, based. I mean, the, the, the book had just come out and, and was a was a, you know, was on the bestseller list, but it wasn't a, a wasn't really based on something that had to totally pervaded the consciousness of the of the world. And so we were kind of an original movie as much as we were based on Andy's brilliant book. Um, in the minds of the consumer. And so, you know, that's the type of thing that sometimes has gotten, it's gotten a lot harder to make these days. We were very fortunate that, you know, we made a movie that I think really connected with an audience that was able to perform at a level that justified, um, you know, being a big theatrical movie. But, you know, it, it, those those movies come under a lot of pressure. So you might see things that, you uh, may not have been made 10 years ago or five years ago, now starting to get made, but really being made for the streaming market in mind. And do you think uh, people will come back to the theaters when this is all over? I know that there's some people who who seem to doubt that. I, I personally, I'm anxious to get back to a movie theater. Listen, I, I think there's going to be a lot of pent up demand for once it's safe for big communal social experiences, um, whether that's going to a movie, going to a ball game, going to Disneyland, going on vacation. I think people 
you know, we, we've, our brains have changed over these last few months, but when we're finally able to climb out of our burrows and, uh, and see our friends again, I think we're going to remember what that was like. Um, and so I think there might actually be an over-indexing of, uh, of people, you know, out of the gate and, and there's going to be, a, a you know, I think there's going to be a real desire to, to do that. Um, where they're going to see that, I think is interesting. That may change. I mean, I'm not, you know, obviously my business is tangential to the theatrical, you know, um, exhibition business. Um, but, you know, it does seem like the, the, the big movie chains have, you know, um, they've certainly had a tremendously difficult economic, um, period and there's some legal things that are happening and you may see some consolidation and you may see consolidation between studios and, and theater chains which actually technically wasn't legal until i think this year um since the, the 50s um and you know that it's it's going to change sort of you know what how people go see them i think you're going to probably see fewer theaters but you might see more spectacular theaters and you might see things where you know it really becomes an event the, the model people talk about a lot is like going to see a show on Broadway, you know, where you, um, uh, you know, you, it, it becomes a real event and, and maybe you're seeing it only for specific movies, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see that. It's all pretty speculative, but I, I, I don't think the idea of big communal experiences are gonna, is going to go away anytime soon. And frankly, I think part of the magic of movies, and I love television as well, but one of the things that movies do um, that I think no other, you know, art form really does is it, it's able to take, you know, you can take spaceships and dinosaurs and aliens, obviously, and put those on big screens, but it actually does an even more amazing thing, I think, with really intimate, personal human drama and where you see conversations with between two people on a 50-foot screen is actually a, a fundamentally different experience than seeing that, you know, uh, in real life or seeing it, you know, on a television size um, screen. So uh, I, I don't think it's going to go away. I really don't. I think, I think what we have to do though is, you know, be really um, um, very specific and, and challenge ourselves to make movies that are worthy of people's attention. And I think they have to be better than they've ever been. I think they have to be more interesting. I think they have to be more diverse. I think they have to really push the envelope because, you know, the other thing that has also changed is the audience is just incredibly more savvy and story literate. They've just seen more things. They've seen all of the great movies and they've seen all of the great TV shows. And, you know, when you make something new, you're actually being compared to hundreds and thousands of, of other um, stories, not just the movies that come out that weekend. And so to break through, you got to really be worthy of, you know, being in the upper echelon of that, which is, you know, easier said than done, obviously. Aditya, I want to take you a little back. Um, tell us a little bit about your childhood, um, your experience with um, both of your parents are immigrant doctors, you've joked about your, your childhood. Yeah. How did, how did, how did that, um, how did, how was that experience? And, and did you know then that you wanted to go into <laughs> filmmaking or, or was that later? You know, I, my, my parents and technically myself, I was actually born in England and, and moved to the United States when I was about, um, I think about nine months old. Um, so, you know, we were an immigrant family um, and primarily grew up in Seattle, Washington. My parents are both, as you said, physicians and um, themselves in a family of three of my four grandparents were physicians. Um, 
all of almost all of their brothers and sisters and cousins and I, I think we counted at our wedding there were something like 63 doctors or something that had come. um and we actually enumerated them by specialty um <laughs> uh so the, but the, i don't know that i wanted to go into film necessarily uh i i, I can tell you sort of when i i, I realized that uh, i but i did know i didn't want to be a doctor I, I i think i was squeamish i think you know i probably spent a lot of time waiting around in hospital was my parents were on call and and you know I, I got my fill of uh, strange sights and smells um <laughs> uh, but you know i think my, my i think technically the first thing i ever wanted to do was to be a bus driver i was really into bus schedules when i was a kid but actually really <laughs> my first love was um astronomy and i wanted to be an astronaut for work for nasa for a really long time um and then you know then I think the next big thing I really wanted to do, uh, I loved coming down. Um, you know, we would come down to Los Angeles, you know, a, a few summers in a row because my parents would have a conference or something. And it was always, always at Disneyland, at, you know, the Disneyland Hotel or the convention center in Anaheim. And so we would, uh, we would come down there. So I really fell in love with Disneyland and Disney World later when I was, when I was a kid. And I think for a really long time, what I wanted to do more than anything was um, design rides at Disneyland. Like I thought that would be the greatest job that anyone could ever have. Um, uh, and then it, it, interestingly, it actually, uh, when I was a teenager, there was a, um, there was a cover of Time Magazine uh, with a picture of um, Mickey Mouse and Michael Eisner, who was the CEO of, of Disney at that time. Uh, and it famously said, why is this mouse smiling? And it was all about the, the, transformation that had happened at Disney in the 80s and how they'd saved this company from, you know, from ruin. And I remember looking at that picture and seeing this guy and thinking like, wow, he runs Disney. I bet he's the guy who comes up with all the rides at Disneyland. And <laughs> it really was the first time, you know, I, I found out that wasn't true, but it was the first time I realized that there were people who were involved in actually making movies and making entertainment. I mean, obviously you knew that on some level, but you know, I, I grew up in Seattle. I, I didn't know anybody who did that. And, you know, somehow that, that started to morph. Uh, there was a, a win one winter rarely snows in Seattle, but every other year you get like one really big, um, real big uh, storm. And I remember we got snowed in, um, and we lived on this hill, so it was really hard for us to get out. And uh, my parents and I, I'm, a, I'm an only child, so it was the three of us. For some reason, we started to make a list of, it was some combination of like movies my parents loved and then movies we wanted to see. And it just became this like long typewritten list. And what I, and this I was in high school at the time. And um, what I ended up doing was actually systematically kind of working through that list and seeing all of these movies and, you know, movies from the fifties and the sixties and the seventies and, you know, things that, um, you know, I'd heard of, but had never seen like, you know, Chinatown or in, in fact, the Godfather. And, um, you know, and, and it was kind of the first time I also realized, cause I was kind of paying attention, you know, to the credits that you'd started to see the same names of people, you know, besides actors, but, you know, these, writers and directors and producers show up time and again and you know it really made me aware I mean I, of course I knew about George Lucas like I loved you know Star Wars when I was you know a, a kid and um here, here's a you know one of the things about being an immigrant family um we were actually the first family on our block in the early 80s to have a uh VCR because it was the only way for my parents to stay up on Bollywood movies 
um, because you know Seattle had a really small uh, Indian community at the time. Um, In fact, what we used to do is very funny. So Seattle didn't really have a big Indian community, but we used to get in the car and drive up to Vancouver, British Columbia. And uh, there was a much bigger Indian community there and we would drive and there's a little you know, neighborhood where they have all these Indian stores and restaurants. And um, we would go into the store and the guy who owned the store would like turn the sign of the store from open to closed. And then we'd follow him, I guess it must've been his house. I don't know, like downstairs and there'd be this sheet. And on the sheet were, you know, 25 you know, I didn't know at the time, but obviously pirated Hollywood <laughs> movies with, you know, photocopied, you know, covers. And my parents would just stare at them and kind of pick four, five, six movies. We would drive back to Seattle and over the next couple months, they would watch those movies. And then they would drive back to Vancouver return those movies and then get six other movies so it was a pirate blockbuster you know i can't imagine that was a good business model for anybody but you know it really (laughs) let my my parents stay connected um and one of the things though that happened was uh you know star wars which i was just like a shade too young to see i think when uh, when it came out in theaters um I think Return of the Jedi was coming out. And so my, my dad went to the store and, and not to the store, to the library actually, and got the, um, the VHS copy of, of Star Wars. And I, you know, I saw that and like my head exploded. It was like, I'd never seen anything like that. And my dad's a clever fellow, by the way, I think the statute of limitations has passed. So I can tell this, but um, he ended up actually getting a friend's VCR as well. And he made a copy of, of Star Wars. <laughs> and I watched that movie, you know, I mean, now it's common, you know, my, my five-year-old watches the same movies all the time. But at that time, in, you know, in the 1983, um, I actually ended up watching Star Wars once or twice a day, probably for an entire summer. So, I mean, I saw that movie 75 times or more, um, or at least, parts of it. Uh, and, you know, it, obviously I love the story, but it was also really interesting to me that, and I don't think I even could articulate it at the time, but there were sort of patterns in the storytelling that were really interesting as well. And one of the things that was also happening was, you know, we were studying, we were studying um, Greek and Roman mythology uh, in, in, in school. And in fact, my parents were sort of teaching me about Indian mythology at the same time. And you know, I think the Joseph Campbell power of myth stuff was also really, you know, um, popular right around that time because of, of the connections with Star Wars. And it was the first time I realized that, boy, these stories are all kind of similar and different in, you know, in these key ways. And that was really interesting to me. Like, it just seemed, you know, and there was like a math to it. And I also love math, too. So it, I just got really interested in stories and how stories work. Um, so I think all of these things kind of culminated. And uh, when I was in high school, I uh, decided just one day, I think I told my parents, like, yeah, I think I want to go to Los Angeles and, and work in the film business. And, you know, I, I don't know that I got the same reaction that um, probably most immigrants' children get, um, which is that my parents are actually uh, real follow your bliss kind of people. And they, I think, had seen how dedicated I was to sort of being methodical about learning about film um, and teaching myself about it. And they kind of, they said, okay, well, you know, that you should, you should do that. Like, you, you should do it. I mean, then, of course, they said, I mean, you should have a backup. 
right? And so, they, you know, they, they definitely encouraged me, you know, to, you know, I don't even know if they knew what it, the difference between a business degree and an economics degree. They're like, you should go in that, you know, just get a backup degree. I said, okay. But, you know, I, I thought what I would do, because there was one biography of George Lucas that was in our school library, and I looked at it, and it said USC Film School. And so I thought, oh, well, I guess that's what you have to do. You have to go to film school if you want to go work in the film business. It makes sense. Um, so I, you know, I applied to to USC and UCLA because those seemed like the two great, you know, film programs. Um, ironically, I actually didn't apply to the film programs. I thought I would just apply to the schools and then go there and then, you know, just take some film classes and not realizing that wasn't how it worked at all. But I had a college uh, counselor at in high school who kind of, you know, I think was really amused with sort of with my interests. And, you know, everyone always said, but you're so good at math and science. Like, why don't you, why don't you go be an engineer or a thing? And I said, I, I don't know, I, I like this as a hobby, but like, I'm, I'm really actually interested in, in this other thing. Um, and he said, listen, you should apply to Pomona. And I said, Pomona, you know, that's, it's good. They don't have a film program. They're not really in Los Angeles. Like it's a small school. I, you know, never, se never seen them play football on a Saturday. <laughs> like, why am I going to Pomona? He's like, just trust me. Just apply. So I said I applied. I mean, I shouldn't say this, but I partially because it was the early days of the Common App, and I realized if I could apply through the Common App instead of the Pomona App, I could write one less essay. Like I could reuse one of my other essays. So. Um, don't tell my parents. So I applied and I got it. We won't tell you know, anybody. Yeah, <laughs> they can still rescind it, I think. But <laughs> they, um, they, uh, you know, I, I, listen, I was, I was very fortunate and I got in and, you know, I, I came, I actually got in before I ever visited campus and I had come down to, um, to visit USC and UCLA and um and pomona and i remember taking the tour at usc and you look around and you're like the george lucas shooting stage and the steven spielberg scoring stage <laughs> and the johnny carson television you know stage and yeah you're just like okay well this is obviously like you know it, you felt like you're on a movie lot um and then you go to ucla and it's just like absolutely gorgeous like just the most beautiful green lush you know it was probably april um, yeah it must have been in april and um and then a very funny thing happened i took the tour at ucla and this very nice person gave me this tour and i remember you know uh um walking around and and it just everything looked so beautiful and um and i just ended up I remember halfway through the tour, he like waved at somebody that he knew that, um, and he said, yeah, you know, we were in a, we were in a class a couple years ago. I said, oh, it's such a friendly campus. And afterwards I, um, I just ended up talking with him and, and he said, um, he said, well, where else are you applying? And I said, well, I'm really deciding, to be honest, I'm deciding between here and, and um, USC and, and Pomona. And as soon as I said it, he said, he looked around, I swear to God, he looked, checked, both directions and he said they would kill me if I told you this but you should go to Pomona and I said wait you just gave me the UCLA tour what are you talking about <laughs> he's like he's like look it's great here but to be honest like it takes forever for me to get my classes and like I got into Pomona and you know I've always one thought I might have made a mistake and and I, I just I couldn't believe it so the next day I was actually taking the tour <laughs> at Pomona and I mm -hmm. went and and it's funny because I, I never remembered who these 
these two women were, but they were, you know, they were probably freshmen. So they were probably a year um, older than me in, in, uh, in school, but they were the nicest two people I had ever met in my life. And they couldn't walk 10 feet without running into someone that they knew. And, and all of a sudden I realized what it meant to be at a small liberal arts school and like what that, you know, you know, my parents didn't know, like they, they didn't grow up in this country and there wasn't a tradition of that. Um, they both went to medical school, you know, straight out of high school, actually, it's a totally different system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just remember thinking at that time, I don't know why, but I said, all right, I love this. This really feels like the place for me. They don't have a film program. I'm going to figure out some way to swim upstream and get into Hollywood, but I'm going to take four years and I'm going to learn something to make movies about. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what I did. I ended up, I ended up going, I entered as an economics major. It made my parents very happy. Um, <laughs> but honestly, I just kind of took random classes for a couple of years and I didn't really think about um, what, uh, what my major was going to be. And when I was a sophomore, I convinced my parents to let me, you know, bring a car down to, to Pomona. And um, this is a little bit of a nerdy side uh, aside, but uh, it was the early days of the internet. And I had actually made a friend uh, on the internet who was, you know, roughly my age and was going to school in, in Washington, DC. And we both realized we were kind of similar. Like we loved movies and 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 he actually said well you know i just did this internship at um new line cinema which at that time was a small independent movie studio and he said you should you should do that you should i'll call them and why don't you go for an interview and i remember thinking like oh my gosh this is it like how could i possibly get this job i'm sure there are a million people lining up you know to do this and so i drove into you know this is pre-google maps i really like looked at the thomas guide and figured out which exit to take and it all seemed very far away it was about you know 45 minutes away probably an hour um and i went in and the other thing that I had also done um, sort of running up to this was um, there were there were two newspapers basically that would cover all of the film business. There was something called the Hollywood Reporter and Variety, and they're both around today. And now there are a couple others. They're not really published anymore, but they used to be um, um, physical magazines. And you know, I had kind of discovered them by accident uh, when I was in high school, and. I thought they were actually just like, initially I didn't realize they were like industry trade papers. I just thought they were like film fan magazines. Cause like all they did were talk about all of these movies that I'd never heard of before. Cause anytime someone would sell a script or they started shooting a movie or something, they would announce it in, in, in these um, publications. And so I, I started just kind of re- reading them religiously. And in fact, the very first person I ever met in, that worked in the film business was uh, I was sitting in Honold Library, um, where they actually had um, they had Variety, and I was just sitting there, you know, reading it. And all of a sudden, this person comes up to me and and looks at me and says, "Hey, how long have how long have they had that here?" And I, I just looked up and and uh, stranger said, that. and uh, I said, "No, ever since I've been a student." And and he said, "Oh, that's great. You know, when I was a student here, I used to write letters to the library telling that they needed to subscribe." And I said. <laughs> Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, and then he just said, uh, you know, uh, do you want to get a, a lunch? You know, you want to go to In-N-Out and get a burger or something. And I remember thinking, like, that's a very strange thing, but 
okay, why not? You know, what's the worst? Well, I mean, probably something really terrible could have happened, but, uh, <laughs> and so we went and, um, and his name was Greg McKnight and he, uh, was a Pomona student, uh, a few years before me, he'd graduated and come back to, um, come back to campus. And he had just graduated from the Peter Stark producing program at USC and was going to work at one of the agencies at William Morris, um, which was, you know, the oldest agency in Hollywood. Um, and, you know, we really just kind of struck up this friendship and, you know, we've been pals turns out for, you know, 25 years. Um, and, you know, have done a lot of, we did a, a big project over the summer, uh, you know, that was based on a piece of material and a writer that he represented. Um, but, you know, going back years, we've, we've been friends and, and, you know, he's helped me get jobs and, and, you know, always had good advice and, um, you know, and, and it all started out of this like random conversation, just a serendipitous conversation with Honnold. Um, anyway, all this to say, by the time I got to New Line, I had been, you know, reading and sort of soaking up this information about the industry for a couple of years. And so I think they were really tickled that there was an intern who, um, you know, could make photocopies. But then when they would ask, you know, what are the romantic comedies that are in development at Warner Brothers? I would sort of rattle off a list of names. And they're like, wait, how do you know that? I, I, for whatever reason, I've had a pretty good memory in my life. So, um, yeah, so that's I so that was basically I, I kind of made that was my, that was my start in the business, and I ended up working there for my sophomore and, and junior year, um, and then my senior year I went over to DreamWorks, um, which was you know at that time this brand new studio that had been just started about a year before by Steven Spielberg and Jeffrey Katzenberg, and you know who had been in that Disney article all those years before. I couldn't <laughs> believe that I could be working you know so close to these two guys and David Geffen, who obviously was a legend, and. Um, you know, I worked there for a year and I graduated and then, you know, that really is what kind of started my, my career. I, I then went on to work for a producer named Mark Johnson um, and then went over to Warner Brothers um, a, a year or so, I mean, a couple of years after I graduated as a, as a junior executive there and then stayed for a number of years um, and left and went back to DreamWorks and ran a production company um, that was based at DreamWorks. Um, and then, you know, the, the one thing that happened to me, um, I've been doing this sort of, you know, since I was 18 and, you know, I was I think about 31 or so. Um, I realized that I needed a break. I had been doing this like two, you know, I had been great, but I was getting a little bit burnt out. And, you know, the, the, my other love had always been politics. And I ended up actually being, I came back to economics. I ended up being a PPE major, mostly because I'd taken so many random classes at at Pomona that it was the only major that most of them fit into. <laughs> um, I didn't realize everyone else was like, you know, going to go be a lawyer. I just thought it was just an interesting collection of subjects. Um, and so I, um, I actually... Uh, went and did a lot of organizing for the Obama campaign in 2008 and, um, you know, just had an amazing time. I was so excited about him as a candidate and being involved in politics. And, um, you know, it's, it's ironic that we are, we are having this conversation and they're probably minutes away from calling the presidential race tonight. So this is a, this is an exciting moment, but, um, the, um, you know, so I went, I, I went and did that. And then, you know, kind of took a year after that, I, I flirted with the idea of, of doing it 
um, permanently um, as a career change. In fact, I, I talked to the um, to Kamala Harris's campaign when she was running for attorney general um, in California, and you know, super impressive. And I was like, so you know, I was so taken with what. Um, she was all about. Um, but I realized I still had this itch to do more things in Hollywood. And I just wanted to do it a little bit differently than I had done it before. And so, um, you know, I took a year and traveled and wrote and, you know, tried to, you know, kind of figure out what it was exactly that I wanted to do. And it, it just at that moment, um, it was fortunate that a really um, talented writer named Simon Kinberg, who, um, was looking to become a producer had um, we had a lot of mutual friends and um, we ended up um, working together for nine years at Fox and you know made a bunch of movies together he was making the a lot of the X-Men movies and then you know I was really left to um, kind of build a whole slate of, of movies again movies that I just thought were really interesting and um, and hopefully really commercial and so that's where, you know, The Martian and Murder on the Orient Express came from. Um, I was able to merge my love of astronomy with, with movies and The Martian and then, and then, you know, my love of politics uh, with a television show in Designated Survivor, which was a, a TV series that we had developed and then produced. Um, and then I got to work, um, you know, on, on uh, the Deadpool movies as well, which was a real blast. Um, yeah. And so... I let me Sorry. get you to drill in a little bit more about The Martian. That's uh, that's one of my favorite movies, <laughs> I'll reveal, yeah. and uh, one of my favorite books, too. Um, can you tell us how that all happened? So it's a pretty amazing story from, you know, really from Andy Weir's point of view. Um, you know, Andy was a computer programmer in Silicon Valley um, who always wanted to be a writer and I think had tried to write a novel, had quit his job and tried to write a novel and you know, he tells me, you know, it, it went nowhere. And he kind of made realize that he was just never going to do it professionally, but he loved writing. And so he started writing short stories and putting them on the web. And um, I think got one of them ended up on the front page of Reddit. And so he started getting a small little, um, you know, very loyal band of readers. And, um, and then he had the idea for something longer in The Martian. And so he would write chapters um, online and actually they would get uh, fact-checked by uh, these very dedicated, you know, and he's brilliant and he works out all of the math and the science actually before he writes his stories. But, you know, these guys knew what they were doing as well. And so, um, so he kind of wrote this over a couple of years, uh, chapter by chapter. Um, and when I, when I came across it, uh, it was still a self-published book. He had, you know, basically had put it up you know, on his website, and then someone wanted to read on his Kindle. So he, he put it on the Amazon um, Kindle site and very sheepishly said he had to charge 99 cents because they wouldn't let you do anything for free. But, you know, he's like, it was amazing. You know, 10, 15,000 people have probably downloaded the book. It had incredible reviews. And when I read it, you know, I, I could tell within a page that this was a science fiction story that was both, um, written by somebody who knew you know the science and and astronomy better than i knew but i knew it was authentic um but also it was just really funny and this totally unexpected tone for science fiction and incredibly human and that combination was so potent um that i read when i read the book i read it overnight and i called my friend 
ironically, the same friend who I had met on the internet, uh, who had gotten me my job at New Line years later, <laughs> I had called an executive at Fox and said, hey, you should really interview my friend, uh, Steve, to, uh, to be a junior executive at your company. And he ended up getting that job. And then 12 years after that, I found him as the executive on our deal at, at, um, at, uh, when I, when I was producing there. And so it was, um, you know, I, I told him, I, I said, you have to buy this book and you have to buy it really quickly before anybody else reads it. Cause it's going to cost, you know, 50 times as much if we don't jump on this quickly. And so, you know, to Fox's credit, they jumped on it. And, um, I had, you know, one writer in mind when I read the script, um, a writer named Drew Goddard, who I'd worked with uh, a number of years before, but I could just hear his voice when I when I read Andy's book, and I gave it to Drew and said, "Listen, you trust me, you know. I know you say no to everything, but just read this, and you you got to do this movie." And he he said, "Wait, okay, let me get this straight. It's a self published book. You want me to adapt a blog?" basically. I said, well, when you put it like that, I said, just trust me. And I still have the, you know, five emails he sent me that weekend. It's like, all right, I'm like a quarter of the way through. This is pretty good. You know, please tell me it, it stays that way. I'm halfway through and all right, there's something here. And then, you know, basically uh, I'm, I'm in tears and then, you know, we got to do this. Can we talk on Monday? And so it was a really amazing process and it never works out this way, but I gave the book to one writer he said yes. He wrote one draft of the script. It was just about perfect. Um, he, he was initially going to direct it and then couldn't direct it. And and people heard about the script and, and all of these directors started chasing it. But, you know, we had we gave it to one actor, you know, we gave it to Matt Damon and he said yes. And then, you know, all of a sudden um, Ridley Scott was available because he had another movie that was supposed to go and, and um, it fell apart, you know, on a Friday. We sent him the script on a Saturday and by Monday, you know, I think we were in his office meeting about it and we were in production six months after that. I mean, it was so fast. It would really, I mean, these things, I have projects that, you know, I remember I, there was a project at Warner Brothers when I was a, a junior executive there that had been in development already for 20 years. And that was 20 years ago and it's still in development. So it's, you know, these things can sometimes last a really long time, um, but that one, you know, there was something just, you know, there was something magical about it. And and everybody who we would send it to would just keep saying yes, whether it was, you know, director, actors, you know, it, it just, it really was um, an incredible, uh, an incredible experience. And, you know, to me, the really, really important thing was how could we protect the integrity of the science that Andy had written into the yeah. book, which, you know, in some ways, it's hard. It's, it's very. It's rare to hear, see a science fiction movie that gets the science right. That's one of the things I love about that. It, listen, Andy has a superpower to that in that he can make science, really complicated science ideas, really understandable. Drew has a, a superpower of knowing which of those would translate to screen and how to tell those visually. And and Ridley, of course, has you know this incredible superpower of, of just you know, realizing that. And so just the combination of those three genius brains, and of course, Matt and all of those actors, it really, you know, I think we were able to just protect the core. And, you know, the, one of the things about that movie, and I think, you know, one of my favorite things to see in movies, um, 
are experts. You know, when you when you see somebody who is just like better than you at doing anything, when you watch their process and what they're doing, you just you feel like you are in good hands and you're learning as you're seeing it. Um, and I think it's a secret to like Aaron Sorkin. He's so good at writing experts. So you know, whether it's Moneyball or A Few Good Men or Social Network, like you're just so in that world and it feels authentic. Um, and and also the thing about it was um, there was a real, you know, I like to call it like smart optimism about the, about the story, about the book and about the movie, um, where interestingly, there is no antagonist in the movie, but it's very dramatic. You know, it, there, there are people who are all trying to solve a problem. They're constrained by circumstance. They're constrained by nature. But and they may have different ideas on how to solve a problem, but it it. You know, I think one of the most dangerous tropes in science fiction is the mad scientist. Um, and it's a great trope. It's really effective. It's been great since Frankenstein, probably before. Um, every Michael Crichton uh, book, and I love those <laughs> stories, um, have mad scientists. But there's something pernicious about it also, especially in a world that is unfortunately, you know, a significant part of the of the public is anti-science and either doesn't respect it or is fearful of it or, you know, is, um, you know, disdains it. And, you know, this was a movie that really celebrated science and it really celebrated NASA. And it really, I think, was about the best in humanity. But it did in a way that I think wasn't saccharine. You know, I think there is a really kind of cloying version of that story that, you know, hopefully we succeeded, but we really endeavored to, to avoid um, doing. And so, you know, it was really, uh, it was just a wonderful experience. And, uh, you know, you, 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 you pray that you get one of those in your lifetime. And I was really fortunate to have it and, uh, you know, hopefully have it again. And, you know, I'm working with Andy on a bunch of other projects now. Um, in fact, his next two books, um, you know, I, 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 I left that company and, and a year ago, um, I, uh, I teamed up with my, my friends, um, Chris Miller and Phil Lord, um, who, you know, our directors and writers and, and, and just brilliant, brilliant artists. And, um, you know, they kind of share these very same values about doing things about, they do stories that are optimistic, but not saccharine, you know, and they do, um, they really celebrate, I think, overlooked heroes and people who use creativity to solve problems. You know, I think those are all really wonderful components um, of, of a lot of great stories. And so, you know, we, we, we did this together so that we could endeavor to try and make more of those and make those movies that, you know, you may not know that you ever wanted to see a movie, you know, a Lego movie or a movie about a guy stuck on Mars or, a, you know, um, a, a retelling of a, you know, 75 year old Agatha Christie book, you know, but I think if you can do it in a way that respects the the integrity of the material that understands hopefully why things are successful in the form that they exist in initially but you know reinterpret them for the screen i think that can be a really um it can be a really potent combination and so we're doing a couple of projects with Andy. His next two books, one that's been published called Artemis, uh, and his next book uh, that comes out in May called Project Hail Mary. Um, we, we're developing both of those for Chris and Phil to direct. Um, and then we actually have an original idea that he um, he came up with that um, isn't the book 
yet. It might be a book at some point, but um, but it's a really cool, uh, you know, very different than The Martian. But again, um, um, another story that really does celebrate um, human ingenuity and pluck and and you know how do you, on the most trying of circumstances, really find community? I think that's uh, you know. And by the way, a, a topic that could not be more uh, germane to the situation that we're in right now. Like I said to Andy when we went on the lockdown because I was I was driving I think for the first time when we all went home and I remember just getting everything ready and like had my my you know my and I mean, it was like before masks right so it was like you know I had my hand sanitizer and water and, and gloves and everything and I called him and I said Andy I felt like Mark Watney going in the Mars rover on a you know on a mission <laughs> and I said you know did you ever think that we would be running a massively parallel simulation of the Martian with 7 billion people where we're all trapped on this planet by ourselves. And he said, I know, it's a little eerie. And then there's Deadpool, <laughs> which seems to have started a trend of, of, of beat superhero movies. Yeah. Um, how did that come about? Well, that was an interesting one. You know, that was a movie that Ryan Reynolds and these two brilliant um, writers, uh, Paul Wernick and Rhett Reese had, um, and, and a, a brilliant director, Tim Miller, had had been developing actually for a number of years before we got involved. So, you know, to be really honest, we we came in to try to get them over the finish line. They'd been trying to get the movie made for a number of, of years. And, um, you know, I think all of a sudden we realized, and, and the studios really realized that you could do superhero movies that didn't have to all feel like just a giant, you know, again, summer blockbuster, um, mm -hmm. one size fits all movies. Um, and this was something that was, you know, written to be R rated. It had a real specific attitude and comedic point of view. And, you know, the studio basically said, all right, look, you're going to make it for a quarter of what we normally make these superhero movies for. Um, but we're going to let you really go for it. And, and so that was, you know, that was, a, that was a real fun one. And, and, you know, I, I feel fortunate to have been a, a part of it and, and, you know, hopefully contributed, I think, my, um, you know, as what, what I could and, and, and to see Ryan and everyone really just realize that was was really exciting. And then, you know, and then the sequel, um, you know, all of a sudden you were in an interesting place because you were no longer the underdog. All of a sudden, you know, that first movie, <laughs> when you made it, it was right. like a scrappy little thing. And, and then it just, you know, it exploded in such mm -hmm. a way. And I think the challenge with sequels always is, you know, you know, they had spent seven years on that story and the script on the first one. And, and the second one, you know, you didn't have as much time. You never has much, have as much time on the second one. Mm -hmm. Um and everyone wants you to play the hits, but they also want something new. And you got to figure out like what's the right mix um, mm -hmm. and what's the tone. And and I think we learned a lot from the first movie. And I think we also knew we had to evolve. And so, you know, I think the second one got much bigger. I think we were able to add like a really fun group of, of actors and, 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 and different personalities and, um, and, you know, Ryan really, you know, look, as long as he is the, the North star of, that franchise, you know, it, it's always going to work. Um, so, you know, I feel foolish even saying, <laughs> you know, but, you know, look, I, I think you, you do want to make sure that, um, that you never know, you never know if lightning strikes twice and, 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 you know, you want to, uh, again, it's like, 
that's I remember reading about I think by the time they made the third Indiana Jones movie, you know, Steven Spielberg used to call the Indiana Jones theme the thrill button. And like you can't press it that many <laughs> times. And so actually in the third Indiana Jones movie, they barely played the Indiana Jones theme. And like when it finally comes in at the end, it's so rousing because you've kind of been anticipating it the whole time. And I think, you know, with with a sequel, you gotta be really careful. Um and uh, you know, listen, I was I was really happy with how that turned out. And I think it it's in some ways it's it, the first movie is a much darker movie and, and has probably more um, pathos, which I think was really critical to establishing who mm -hmm. Deadpool was. Um, and the second movie, I think, is just a romp. Like, it's just it's it's fun and, you know, hopefully not obnoxious. It just it really, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I think it really uh, it really sings. And, um, you know, it, it's just, those movies are a delight. We're almost out of time, but I've got to ask, um, you know, I, I saw, I was reading something about you growing up with, with fellow filmmaker, uh, Chris Miller, that you work with, who you work with today. And I, I couldn't, I, you know, I, I just imagine the two of you, like those kids from Spielberg's movie, uh, Super 8, running around making a, you know, zombie movie with your dad's camera. Was, was that what it was like? Well, we did. We, we, we did a couple of things. The, the first one, the, the magnum opus, was a movie called The Adventures of Jungle Steve. And initially, it was a little bit more ambitious. It was it was the sort of meta movie called How to Make a Movie on No Budget. And it was about a producer who was basically trying to do an Indiana Jones Star Wars knockoff. Uh, and it all stemmed from me basically wanting to do the gag of having someone dressed as Indiana Jones with a garage door slowly coming uh, down on top of them and having them roll through and grab their hat. <laughs> and uh, and then from there, we, we, we got ambitious. We, we did all sorts of crazy things. In fact, uh, my one of my other friends, uh, his aunt had um, an amphicar, which was a car that could actually drive and then become a boat when you would go into oh. into a lake. I think it was a... <laughs> Sounds and, like something and, from a James Bond movie. Though. Well, what's really, what's really <laughs> funny about it, so the whole movie was just a, a send-up of all these Spielberg moments. And, and then we had this like great set piece. And by the way, he was the only one who was allowed to drive it. So it was a really awkward thing where we had to kind of explain why our heroes weren't driving this other stranger what uh we had a whole action set piece out on lake washington uh and then uh and then you know didn't sink the car which which was uh, i think appreciated but the funny postscript to that was you know we did it and and then you know probably what 15 years later um spielberg actually made a fourth indiana jones movie and you wouldn't you believe it? There's an Amphicar sequence in that movie. <laughs> so pull yeah, it from you guys. Your time. <laughs> <laughs> you got you got the idea from you guys. You know, I yeah. I don't want to say that. That's not that's not oh, cool well. to say. But. <laughs> so um, I I wish we could keep talking, but on on that note, we're going to have to wrap this up. We've we've been talking with noted film producer Aditya Sud. Uh, class of 1997. It's, it's been fun having you with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And to all who've stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast at Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.